Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey guys, welcome back to Chilling and Killing with me, Jade. And me, John. And today we explore the story of one of America's most prolific serial killers. He was known as John Berger, John Berger and the Dating Game Killer. And this is the story of Rodney Alcala. Well done. Like Thank clean, you. smooth take. We've no really recorded this about five times. Yeah, this is, I think <laughs> this is really the third time in total. It was horrendous. I don't know what, like, John Berger. What a name. Mm-hmm. Isn't that? He picks that name. Yes, I know. What a lack of him. Do you think he was just in that place? And he was like, John. Everyone picks John. I'm not going to go Smith. I'm going to go Bugger, darling. Oh, John Bugger. That's going to be my name. Oh, he definitely <laughs> prefers burgers over hot dogs. Oh, that's, that's so true. Yeah. So, yeah. You want to die right in? No, really. I want to, like, circle back and focus on why you keep pretty force hot dogs in my burger conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a really... Like, I just <laughs> prefer hot dogs over burgers. I get that. You know, I, I like hot dogs. Yeah, okay, well. yeah. But let's dive right in now. Let's dive right yeah, in. Yeah, okay, let's do it then. So on the 25th of September 1960 in LA, eight-year-old Tally Shapiro was making her way to school when a man pulls up beside her and asks if she would like a ride to school. Now, Tally's knows that she's not supposed to talk to strangers because mum and dad have told her that all her life. And he just responds with, that's okay, I know your parents, and they say it's okay. I've got this beautiful picture that I need to show you. And at this point, Tally gets in the car because she believes the man's genuine and that he knows her parents. And surely if her parents say that's okay, then it must be okay to get in his car, right? John, what would it take you to get in a man's car? Puppies. Like... What's a puppy? So just a puppy? I don't think it would really matter. I think you'd get in a car for a pound, if I'm being honest. Probably, yeah. Like, once I get in there, they would realise they'd made a horrible mistake, though. Return you? Yeah, definitely. Free of charge? Like, I am not stealable. I know this. Like, it's a burden I must wear. That seems fair enough. People's never going to steal me. No, you're so right. You're so right. So anyway, so Tally gets in the strange man's car and they drive away. Unknowingly to them that both... Unknowingly to them both. That another driver actually witnessed the full thing. And they knew in his gut that something wasn't right. 
So the driver then follows the man and Tally to the apartment and when he pulls up, it makes a call to the police who dispatched someone to the apartment building straight away. And when the police arrived, they knocked on the door, waited patiently for them to answer. And then when Rodney answered the door, he asked if they could give them like a few moments just so he could put some clothes on because he said he was just out of the shower. The officer agrees to give him 10 seconds and after that 10 seconds is up, the officer breaks down the door and has an uneasy feeling in his gut when he enters the apartment. When the officer enters the apartment, he finds eight-year-old Tally lying on the floor of the kitchen in a pool of blood, with her tiny white shoes sitting on the side of her. Tally had been raped and beaten with a steel bar, which was still there. All of the attention at the scene was focused on Tally, but it looked as though it was too late. With this in mind, the officers wanted to catch the man that done this, but somehow he managed to leave the apartment unnoticed. After a look around the apartment, the officers heard a sound come from Tally's mouth. They rushed to her side and called an ambulance for her. They then searched the apartment for any indication of who this man is. While searching, they find a lot of photography equipment in the apartment and they also find a massive collection of photos, most of them young girls. They never manage to find any formal identification, but what they do find is a student ID from UCLA. Now the police have a name. Yes, yeah, so can you imagine what would have happened if the police just went in straight away? First time round. Bang, yeah. bang, bang. Knocked all down. Oh my God. But I think what they're trying to do is like, they give them 10 seconds. I don't know why they let them shut the door on them. That feels like wrong. But he said that he was just out of the shower. They probably don't want to see his belly. Like, I get that. But like, even then, you stand in the doorway. Like, they're not saying, here you, get the way, drop towel, show me your belly. <laughs> I'm assuming he had a towel on. <laughs> drop the towel. <laughs> You just like right, cool. show me what you're working with. I, I'm hoping that's <laughs> what it was. <laughs> but even then, I feel like you should be standing in the doorway of the door, like you know what I mean, like between the door opening and closing. So he's like, "I'll yeah. stand here at the door. You yeah. have ten seconds, and then I will enter because I believe a crime's been committed." Yeah. Well, I think like obviously when me and you were kind of researching the case, one of the things that we struggled to find was how he managed to escape. How did he escape? So. When the police initially go to the door and they're kind of chapping on the door and there's no response, um, he says that he had opened the side window of the apartment at that time and then opened the door, explained to the officer that he was just out of the shower and if he could just give like a few moments to put clothes on and then once they close the door over, that's when he left through the side window. That's just a... Yep. Yeah, you think somebody would see that, right? Like, I don't know the layout of the apartment, so I can't co- quickly comment. But, right, you just think, like, side window. What is he, like, how is he going to say? Climb Maybe there's, like, window. a fire escape or something could, like that. Could be that. Maybe but, he just made his way down. See, that this that's a cultural thing, because we don't have fire escapes. Like, mm. I've never really seen one or the walk. They have some in the old buildings, like, just outside Glasgow town. I've never seen one. I don't think anyone lives in them though. Nah, that makes sense. For some nah, time. But that yeah, that's sense. how he managed to like escape. So if they maybe went in straight away, they or like if the door was open a bit more, like you said, if they were standing in the doorway and maybe in that time they maybe would have seen tallied quicker mm-hmm. and that kind of instinct of, okay, we need to get this guy would have been yeah. a bit quicker at that point as well. But that's a tough, difficult situation. Well, a tough, difficult, that doesn't make sense. That's a difficult situation to be in. I suppose, like, all they've got for you going is some guy picked up a girl, but they don't know any of the situation for that. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't know if that's her dad, that's her relative, and you're kicking them in the door and you go, right, where is she? And you're like, that's my, that's my, that's my daughter. Yeah, but, like, 
fair play for the guy that actually called the police as well. Like, know, like, what a good Samaritan. Smashing on him, like, one-on-one, just a, this seems uncomfortable. I'd rather be, like, look a bit silly if it turns out to be nothing than not doing anything. I wonder not if he was anything. on his way to work. Like, I can't, can't come in and follow a guy. Oh, I'm going to be a bit late, I'm following someone. I don't think that's something they'd probably picked up on. Because you don't even know the guy's name to go, well done, insert name here. Yeah, not that late. If he somehow listens to this podcast, somehow, well done you. You are a good guy, <laughs> Well done you. You're a good egg. Aye. 70s, you've probably passed away now, so, you know, well done you wow. when you did it. <laughs> wow. Just no, back. We're all going to die someday. Okay, okay. Well, Bumming everybody just, out. Let's just avoid that just now. Okay, thanks. Bye. When Rodney escaped, he fled to New York to avoid being arrested and enrolled in NYU film school under the name of John Berger. How easy was it to change your name back in the sixties and the seventies? Apparently, really easy because you uh, don't need a passport or a driver's license with your actual name on it. Apparently so. And in 1971, he then changed his name to John Berger, original. Better who's John Hot Dog? Absolutely, you know <laughs> it. And he got a job as a camp counselor. And did background checks exist then? The guy, the guy can change his name like at will. Mm. I doubt it would have helped. Okay. Oh well. But what I didn't realise is in the same year, the FBI also put him on the 10 most wanted list. And two girls that were attending the camp seen the poster in the post office of Rodney and reported this. He was then arrested and extradited back to California. But by this time, the Shapiro family had moved away to Mexico and that was to give Tally the best chance of a fresh start. They decided that it would be too hard for Tally to come back and testify against Rodney. Because of this decision, they were unable to convict Rodney of rape, attempted murder and Rodney pled guilty to a lesser charge of assault. He was then paroled after 34 months in the year 1974 under indeterminate sentencing, and that was a programme popular at the time which allowed parole boards to release offenders as soon as they demonstrated evidence of rehabilitation. What the fuck is indeterminate sentencing? Why was that a thing? Well, it's it's not a, it was a thing before like determinate sentencing was a thing, so it used to be quite popular because it's more about rehabilitating people and mm. see when you think about it it makes a lot more sense like it's not a set period of time it's when you think you won't be committing crimes again we will release you which is quite smart but it has a problem that sociopaths who are good at lying can game mm-hmm. the system so if you think of it like that it can be very very easily played you would do great in that I think I would I'm not a psychopath though I'm just good at... Let's no. just be clear. <laughs> John is not a psychopath Thank or you. a sociopath. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Thanks. Thanks for the maybe. You have very lack. You lack remorse. It's not lack and remorse. It's just like... It's not lack and remorse. I just have the inability to feel sorry for anyone. <laughs> How dare you, sir? You have... that. This is character assassination. Is it I? You will be getting sued. Will I? You will hear from our lawyers. For... So... You don't have a lawyer. I have Thor. Thor is a dog. Yeah. Thor is our dog, just he's in adorable. case anyone didn't know. He is adorable. He is, but he is not qualified as a lawyer. He's got a little lawyer suit, a little lawyer tie, and a little lawyer briefcase. He does not have any of these things, John is lying. Gets he may shit. get a bow tie, yeah. though. He gets shit done. He does not. He will sue your ass. He is fucking shit. But yeah, indeterminate sentencing. It's, it's, not, it's still around, like it's still a thing today. Like, I understand the premise. I know it kind of helps reduce the amount of life sensing and that's, like, a really good 
think yeah. I don't know I think it depends on the crime like see some like someone's committing murder yeah, you're like five years you've done so well off you go into the world yeah like that thing it's really hard to sell to the public uh, oh well they're better now but you're like yeah but I've still mm. lost a loved one or a crime was still committed, committed. against me he should be it was a tough on crime thing is determinate sentencing so when they were tough on crime they increased the mandatory minimums for people mm-hmm. so they had to serve more time in prison you sound like an advertisement for back in the city they were tough on crime yeah. that's well it's amazing this Shit, is you could be a mascot it started to see because of the war on crime that's mm-hmm. why more people were incarcerated you're so smart I'm, I'm not so smart I'm just saying like 50% of the American <laughs> prison population is in for non-violent drug crime. Just saying. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, let's move on. Okay. Less than two months later, Alcala was arrested again for violating his parole after providing marijuana to a 13-year-old girl who claimed to be kidnapped by Alcala. I don't know why it was claimed to be. Like, it wasn't a, a setting. I'm not sure. That's just the, the research that was there at the time. I don't know if you want to say marijuana as well. I feel like quite the knock. Saying. No one says it the way that you say it. A marijuana feels like the right way to say it. Moving we'll on. Say, we'll say marijuana. Moving on. Once again, he was granted parole after serving two years under indeterminate sentencing. So this is a bit with indeterminate sentencing that's a bit concerning. Yep. Why was he? Because like, he was clearly rehabilitated according <sighs> to the parole board. John. Again, I'd like to see the paperwork for that at some point. You that, well, that would be great. That. Mm-hmm. Seems crazy. You do that, girl. Even though Alcala has a criminal record mm-hmm. and is also a registered sex offender, he was hired as a typesetter by the early times, covering stories about the hillside strangler. That could have been him. Uh, it wasn't, though. But um, I get what you mean. Yeah, like, some of them were attributed to him later on, mm-hmm. or were attributed to the hillside strangler that were actually his. Yeah. Either way, yeah. shit was going down in LA. Yeah, it was. Yep. Rodney's reign of tenor went on for over a decade before he was finally caught. And to go into some details about the arrest, we first need to start with some information about the victims. This bit can be a bit graphic, and if it's not for you, you probably want to skip the next five minutes and maybe don't listen before eating or while eating. I'll after skip. Eating. I'll skip. Bye. You, you'll skip. My pleasure. I'll see you in five. Okay, okay. Um, so we'll start with the murder of Jill Barcombe. Jill moved to California from New York and was described as a fun, bubbly girl. Jill grew up in Park Avenue with her five sisters and five brothers and her parents, Maurice and Joyce. Maurice has been deceased since 1996 and Joyce passed away in March of 2012. Jill was buried in a cemetery alongside her parents. Before moving to California, she'd spent a day with her aunt Arlene and her cousins and that was the last time they saw her. And on the 10th of November 1977, Jill's body was discovered in the vicinity of the famous Hollywood sign. She was just 18 years old. Jill was found with her knees to her chest and her face in the dirt and was naked from the waist down. Alcala had raped, sodomised and murdered Jill. Alcala had used a large rock to smash in her face. There were also three bite marks on her right breast. She was strangled to death. What a sick fucker. Like, do you know what petrifies me? It's the fact that he's murdered this young girl and, like, treated her like absolute shit. At the end, poses the bodies. Like, that's him saying that he has time to do that kind of thing. Like, he thinks he's got enough time to do that. Like, how incredible does he think he is? You do know we're recording a podcast about serial killers. 
Sick fuck should be like the title. Oh my god, that's a new title. Sick fucks. Sick fucks. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. again, like the more we discuss this, we'll more find out this happens. This is what serial killers do. Stuff that you in your head go, that's huh. fucking disturbing. <laughs> and the reason you do that is because you're not them. Like you, you're a. I was gonna say well-functioning member of society. But not according to my work colleagues. You're a semi-well-functioning member of society. Thank you. Kind yeah. mm-hmm, sir. That, that's what it is. Like, the stuff... Like, see, if we're discussing something and you're going, that's fucking disgusting, that should be your natural response. That yeah. should be where your head's at. Mm-hmm. For example, like, he used to strangle people and then hang about to resuscitate them to do it again. Strangling takes... So long, like it's a lot of pre- like it's a lot of effort to do that, and then resuscitating someone again, a lot of effort, a lot of time. Again, he wants to have complete control in the last moments, and like this is the very very likely again. This got to be a pretty sick. They sexually gratify himself. That is dirty. That's what it's all about. He's a bad egg. He is a bad egg. He's the worst egg. Yep. So we'll jump forward a bit in time, and Rodney has been convicted. Of five counts of first degree murder as of 2010. However, the police estimate the body count could potentially be around 100. That's crazy, right? That is ridiculous. Like, 100 people could potentially be his victims. Oh, like, isn't that he's not as well known as other serial Where killers? Where did they find the time? Apparently, 70s, you've got lots of time. Did he even go to work? Probably doesn't have Netflix. Well, oh, I mean, there was no Netflix in the exactly. series, but did he even go to work? Like, when was he sacked from the LA Times? That's what I want to know. I don't want to bag on the LA Times because, you know, they could potentially sue us, but they hire a convicted sex offender back in the day. Back in the day. So let's not say they're any good. We're not going to go into detail of each of the victims because we don't know all the victims, but we will name the known victims. We've already mentioned Jill Barcombe, Georgia Wickstead, Charlotte Lamb, Jill Perrinto and Robin Samso. We'll dive into the story of Robin Samso. On the 20th of July 1979, Rodney Akala approached both Robin and her friend Bridget, both aged 12 at the time, and he asked if he could take some pictures of them. After posing for a number of photos, a neighbour intervened to check that everything was okay, and Rodney took off. Later on in the afternoon, Robin was riding her bike to her dance class, and this would be the last time that anyone would see her alive again. Alcala had kidnapped and murdered Robin, and on the 2nd of July 1979, Robin's body was finally discovered. The body had been scavenged by animals, and only skeletal remains were left. On the 24th of July 1979, Alcala was arrested for the murder of Robin Samso. Her friends had told the police that a man had approached them and offered to take their picture. The police later circulated a composite sketch that was recognised by Rodney's parole officer, who then made a call to the LAPD. How often is it a composite sketch would ever get anyone captured? I generally wouldn't know. I can't, I can't imagine it would be a lot of Let me tell you, it's hardly ever because they were shit at drawn back in the day. I don't think it was those shit at drawn. I think it's just like today and probably back in the day. Shit drawn. Eyewitness accounts. <laughs> Eyewitness accounts are probably unreliable, but if you want to say shit drawn. I don't think it was just that. I, I think, obviously, eyewitness accounts, so maybe all the details weren't there, but more importantly, like, Maybe talking about the paper, like see, just now with social media and things like that, like things like that could be circulated a lot quicker as opposed to like back in the day. But yeah, just just in case you were wondering. In fact, these parole officers seen it as well. It's quite quite something exactly. He made that call. I've not really heard that before. Yeah, 
And when investigators searched Alcala's mum's house, they did find a receipt for a storage locker in Seattle, which turned out to contain hundreds of photos, mostly of young girls, and also a bag of personal items that detectives believe belonged to victims of Alcala. There were a pair of earrings in the bag that belonged to Robin, which were identified by her mother. Following the investigation, Alcala was charged, tried and convicted for the murder of Robin Samso in 1980. He was sentenced to the death penalty, but this wouldn't be the end of the journey for the Samso family. In 1984, the conviction was overturned by the California Supreme Court, and this was because the Orange County Superior Court trial judge had allowed the jury to hear about the Tala Shapiro case and Alcala's other rape and kidnapping convictions. In 1986, he was convicted for a second time and again sentenced to death, but a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals panel overthrew his conviction once again, in part because a witness were not allowed to testify to Alcala's claim that the park ranger who found Samso's body had been hypnotised by police investigators. Hypnotised by police investigators. What the fuck is that? Are you saying you don't believe in hypnotism? I don't believe that the police hypnotised someone to say this happened. So you don't believe in hypnotism? I just said I do believe in hypnotism. I don't believe the police hypnotised somebody <laughs> to say that they committed a crime. Is hypnotised starting to sound funny to you? Yeah, it does. <laughs> I was just that's one of the things, but for fuck's yeah, sake, no, that's man, like that is mad. Off the fucking wall. That like, is crazy. There's lots of stuff. I'm all oh, right. This could potentially happen. That this isn't one of them. Mm, well, I don't know. <laughs> what are you gonna say? It's the seventies. It's the seventies. Hypnotism was big in the seventies. But apart from that, that must be really hard for the families to get a conviction and think, right, okay, great, that's it done, and then have it overturned, and then get a conviction, and then have it overturned again. What, that, what makes it so much worse is the fact that the things it's getting overturned for are fucking ridiculous. It's technicalities. It's not taking... A technicality is, forgot to file that. No, well, you didn't let the witness testify, but I said, knew about the complete hypnotism. But they... So please... Did use hypnotism back in the day though for certain things, it, but it was classes like uh, memory recall. I fucking hate the seventies. Hate it by a passion. You weren't there in the seventies. I would have been a fucking spoil sport. <laughs> That's not fair. No. We've already got the conviction. <laughs> no, I'm like, fuck this shit. We don't hypnotize people. Get your shit together. Get your shit and confess. Aye. Pick up your tits and go. Seen that, like seen the series? I could have just threw a fucking dart and hit a serial killer. Oh yeah, in California. Hi. Bit of paper. Bang. Oh, serial killer. There we go. <laughs> Another one bites the dust. <laughs> While preparing their third prosecution in 2003, Orange County investigators learned that Alcala's DNA, sampled under new state law, matched semen left at the rape murder scenes of two women in LA. Another pair of earrings found in Alcala's storage locker matched the DNA of one of the two victims. Additional evidence, including another cold case DNA matched in 2004, led to Alcala's indictment of the murders of four additional women. Jill Barcombe, 18, killed in 1977 and originally thought to have been a victim of the Hillside Strangler. Georgia Wickstead, 27, bludgeoned in her Malibu apartment in 1977. Charlotte Lamb, 31, Raped and Strangled in 1978, and Jill Parento, 21, killed in her Burbank apartment in 1979. 
2003, prosecutors entered a motion to join SAMSO charges with those of the four newly discovered victims. Alcala contested the motion and in 2006, the California Supreme Court ruled in the prosecution's favour and in 2009, Alcala stood trial once again. At the third trial, Alcala, acting as his own attorney, told jurors, often in a rambling monotone, that he was at Knott's Berry Farm when Samso was kidnapped. He offered no defence of any kind in the other four cases. He was convicted on all five counts. A surprise witness during the penalty phase of the trial was Tally Shapiro, Alcala's first known victim, and in March of 2010, Alcala was sentenced to death for the third time. So do you know that while he was representing himself, he actually questioned Tally Shapiro, his first known victim, on the that, sand? That shouldn't be allowed. That the is, judge should, should have intervened in that. That is absolutely crazy. But again, he was representing himself, so what else could they have done? Like uh, a guardian, somebody impartial, another witness, another judge. The judge could have questioned her. I don't think so. I don't think so. But he actually asked her if she remembers him, and she said that she didn't. She most likely only remembers kind of the events. She said she only remembers up to getting to the apartment and she doesn't remember kind of anything else That's at that point. The best self-defence mechanism. Yeah. Like your brain trying to block out a traumatic experience. Yeah. And then he's dragged her to court to drag it all back out again. Yeah. And then he had the audacity to say, I sincerely regret and apologise for my despicable actions that day. No, you fucking don't. No, he's clearly doesn't. He it's clearly a doesn't. Lie. Doesn't know what sincerity is. Like he, he has no remorse. He's clearly not apologising for it at all, and no. I doubt he would. He's only doing it for the sake of the courtroom. He's not doing it because he actually cares about her. It's in the fact that he's also written a book that says that he didn't commit these crimes and stuff yeah. like that. So yeah. I think he's full of shit. What an absolute dick. So how did Rodney get the name of the dating game killer? Well, in order to tell you that, we need to take you back to 1978, and. By this point, he'd already killed at least two women and was accepted as a contestant on the dating game despite being a convicted rapist and registered sex offender. What the fuck? Uh, again, like, so apparently dating games in the 70s, very lax of who they brought on. Oh, no, no. Like, they always, they always bring on sex offenders and fucking rapists. <laughs> Apparently so. (laughs) Anyway, host Jim Lang introduced him as a successful photographer of children, clearly, who got his start when his father found him in a dark room at the age of 13. How exciting. Between takes, you might find him skydiving or motorcycling. He won a date with a bachelorette, which her name was Cheryl Bradshaw, who subsequently refused to actually go on a date with him. And according to published reports, it's because she found him creepy. I'm not surprised. <laughs> it's, it's easy to description him. It sounds creepy. At 13, found him in the dark room. It was then having a wank. Probably. It's not even that. Like, have you seen any of the footage from the dating game? I have. That cunt's got the creepiest hair. Like, his hair is, like, so fluffy. You just, I just don't trust a guy that's got that much I mean, hair that's some, so fluffy. Some of the things he says. Oh, like, yeah, that as well. But, like, that hair. I like how you went, his hair's creepy. He was like, the dark's the best time. Why? Because it's dark. <laughs> yeah, no, what a fucking creepy bastard. Like, I'm so happy she didn't go on a date with him. Like, he has a personality, a fucking bad I think he says that he would be a banana if he was going to be any type of food. To be a banana is the most sexual fruit, let's not lie. Who doesn't love a good banana? Eh, me? You're, you're dead to me. Jed Mills, an actor who sat next to Ronnie on stage as bachelor number two, later described him as a very strange guy with bizarre opinions. 
Nosha. He was Nosha Sherlock. Nosha. <laughs> Being rejected by Miss Bradshaw was very likely a trigger for Rodney, as he embarked on a killing spree shortly after. It was speculated by criminal profile Pat Brown that the rejection may have been an exasperating factor. An exacerbating? I meant exacerbating. I did an exacerbating factor. That's all right. He said one wonders what it did to his mind. Well, he's probably already pretty fucked up before that. Most likely. Yeah, so Creepy fucker. Yeah, so that's why he's called the dating game killer, guys. So that's our story for Rodney Alcala today. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Well, I don't know if enjoy is the right word. Again, like we say this, and we're just going to say we hope you enjoy it. Yeah, we hope you enjoy it. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, it's been fun recording this. It took us like 87 takes Literally to get Literally 87 <laughs> takes to get all of that goodness in there. And ironically, actually cutting out more obscene things. Aye, like... Don't say it. Don't say it. Didn't say We cut anything. it out. We didn't cut it out for a reason. So anyway, guys, yeah. So if you'd like to follow us on Spotify, a podcast, if you look at our Instagram, which is Chillin' and Calm Podcast... All those likes and reviews, subscribes would be absolutely great. And until next week, take care. Looking forward to your feedback. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.